Our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 17. This is found on page 555 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, riches that were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, he shall go again. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, okay. Well, good morning to each of you, and again, glad that you're here. If I haven't met you before, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and as we approach this time of uh, thinking together about this passage, we just want to pause and ask for God's help that our hearts and minds would be good soil to receive uh, God's Word today. So let me do that for us. Father in heaven, um, Jesus told that parable of the sower and the seed We pray that our lives today would be good soil and that this seed of your word planted would bear much fruit in our lives. We pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired the authors who wrote these words, that he would make this a fresh word to us today. We pray this in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently, Rachel and I have uh, been watching the Hulu original show, Only Murders in the Building. If anyone else is watching that, it's uh, stars uh, Martin Short, uh, Selena Gomez, and also Steve Martin, uh, who, this show's just reminding me how much I appreciate and love Steve Martin as an actor and as a person, and in part because uh, he's willing to admit out loud uh, what I think is probably likely true of all of us, but that we may be unwilling to acknowledge, and that is that we are all lovers of money. And that's who this passage this morning is directed to in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's directed to those who are lovers of money, the one who loves money. And here's what Steve Martin writes about money. I love this. He says, I love money. I love everything about it. I brought some pretty good stuff. Got me a $300 pair of socks, got a fur sink, an electric dog polisher, a gasoline-powered turtleneck sweater, and of course, I bought some other dumb stuff too. Um, I first ran across that quote from Steve Martin on a Forbes list of kind of, I think it was like the top 100 quotes on money that they had compiled. Here were a few others of my favorites from that list. I love this from Malcolm Forbes. He says, I made my money the old-fashioned way. I was very nice to a wealthy relative right before he died. Uh, And then there's the classic from Will Rogers, right, that too many people spend money they earn to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. And also appreciate... uh, J. Paul Getty, my formula for success is to rise early, work late, and strike oil. Um, But perhaps best of all, 
uh, was not from that list. It was from uh, James Grant, who's the editor of the financial journal Grant's Interest Rate Observer, and he said this, insofar as there is a lesson in history, is that human beings are not good with large sums of money, anything over $136, which that seems right to me uh, today, and, and our message today is Wealth Up in Smoke. Uh, that's our title for this morning, and this isn't a series or a sermon about inflation, but if you've been to the gas pump lately, you've been buying groceries lately, you, you feel this, right? That, uh, that dollar isn't going as far as it did, and you feel the fleetingness of, of wealth in those moments. And that's what we've been looking at in this series in Ecclesiastes. Uh, the teacher, who is the main uh, character whose voice we're hearing in this book, challenges the ways that we strive to find satisfaction in life. And he's looked at this idea of work being a way to find satisfaction. That was last week. We looked at pleasure as a way to try to find satisfaction. And the conclusion so far with both work, pleasure, and now wealth is that if you look to those things to provide you with meaning, satisfaction, the answers in life, that you just end up grasping smoke. That it, it looks solid, but then when you actually try to take hold of it, it just, it, it, it's like chasing the wind. It's this idea of hevel or meaninglessness or fleetingness or vanity. It's used over and over in the book. But I was thinking this week, what is it about money that we love so much? I mean, that's the language of the text. The one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. The one who loves income will never, what is it about money it so causes us to love it, to be attracted to it. And I, I, as I reflected on it more and more, I think at the heart of it is that money offers us, one of the promises, one of the things that money holds out to us, offers us, is, is the promise of rest. A rest from a striving to have comfort, a rest from a striving to have security, Right? You, you think, if I can just have enough money, then I won't worry about having enough. I won't have to worry uh, about my family's well-being. And so, but what's underneath that is that while I don't have enough money, I have to constantly strive and work and to attain and, and struggle. And it, money holds out. If you just have enough of me, then you can finally rest. But here's what the teacher tells us this morning. That if you look to rest, or rather if you look to wealth for rest, it will only leave you restless. That if you look to money for rest, it will only leave you restless. Now if you don't believe me, <laughs> I, I get it, right? And, and the teacher gets it as well. And he is going to give us five sort of quick reasons here this morning why when you look to money for rest, it will only leave you restless. And so if you haven't uh, yet opened the Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I invite you to do that. You can grab the pew Bible in front of you. Again, it's on page 555 there. Or if you just type Google, uh, you know, go to Google, type in Ecclesiastes, and Google will even help you spell Ecclesiastes. I can never spell Ecclesiastes. Uh, and the numeral 5, you can find that online. Take a look. I'd love for you to follow along with me in the, in the passage in the text this morning. So the first reason that the author gives us, rather the teacher here gives us in Ecclesiastes for why restless money leaves us restless is that the more you have, the more you want. 
The more you have, the more you want. And, and I see this in myself. I see it in my kids. For me, uh, you know, it's in a number of different areas, but we think if we just have a little bit more, then we'll, then we'll, then we'll have enough. But then it's not enough. And, and lately for me, that area where I've been seeing that is in the area of, of, of tools. So about six months ago, eight months ago, I, I started into this habit of this kind of learning this hobby of, of woodworking. And of course, like any hobby, right, there's always stuff you can buy. There's all kinds of tools and things you can accumulate. So if a year ago you had said, Bill, what do you think of routers? I would have said like that thing that helps you to connect to the internet. And I was like, oh, routers, like you get the router table, you can get like handheld routers, you can get plunge routers. I was like, I, and I'd love all of them. That would be great. But I, like six months ago, I didn't even want that stuff. And now there's like this whole category of things that I wish I could have more of. And my kids are the same way. Uh, it's stuffed animals. I feel like I'm al- they're always getting more stuffed animals, and it, and they, but they always want more stuffed animals. And I can get really frustrated with that until I realize that I am the same way. My stuff just costs more than theirs. Um, you know, the, the router's a little more expensive than another stuffed animal. Although my daughter Isla, my middle daughter Isla, has latched onto this idea. There is a, I haven't even seen this, but like this seven foot like stuffed penguin at the zoo gift shop. It's $800. So she has the, this $800. But it's like, this all is like, someday when I get $800, I'm going to buy this giant penguin. And she's already planned, like, it won't, probably won't fit in the van, but I don't know how we'll have to figure out how to get it home. So maybe a few of those things. But that's the thing, too. It's like, she thinks, like, if I get this $800 penguin, then, like, my stuffed animal, the, the, you know, the stuffed animal-shaped hole in my soul would, be, would finally be filled. But the more you have, the more you want. And again, you see this in the whole idea of what is, what's the definition of a rich person? There's somebody who has more money than I do, right? Like, I'm not rich, but that person who has more than me, that's a rich person, right? So the, the bar keeps moving. Like, someone who's wealthy, someone who's rich is just someone who has a little bit more than, than I do. But it doesn't satisfy. This is verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income this is vanity, right? And, and you don't have to have a lot of money to love money. In fact, sometimes if you have very little money, you, the, the reason for that is how much you, you love it. So, I mean, you can be a lover of money with $136 or $136 million. The, the amount of money that you have in your checking account does not tell you if you're a lover of money. It's, it's your posture toward it. But again, regardless of how much you have, if you are looking to money to find satisfaction, it will leave you with this profound sense of what the, the, the Hebrew word here of hevel. And it, it, the ESV translates as vanity. The NIV translates as meaninglessness. Uh, sometimes you get futility. This word, one scholar put it this way. It's, it's not that there is no meaning in life that this word is getting at, but rather that if there is a meaning in life, the teacher simply can't grasp it. Just like he cannot grasp the wind, life is utterly enigmatic. Again, that Hebrew word hevel that is translated, you know, vanity so many times here in the book is, is used to talk about vapor or smoke. It, it looks solid, but as soon as you try to grasp onto it, it disappears. Um, Arthur Brooks, in his outstanding book, From Strength to Strength, talks about this. He says, of course, there is 
right? There's some satisfaction with money, right? And, and lots of uh, economists have done work on this, that if you're truly in below the poverty line in your country, in your community, that if you, raise, if you get enough money to be raised above that poverty line, that that actually does substantially increase your well-being, right? Your, your mental health, all of those kinds of things, your, your physical health, all of that. So moving out of poverty, increasing your wealth in that is a really good thing. In some studies have put it at $75,000. Newer studies have said maybe, you know, beyond that you need, you know, of course, inflation is happening. <laughs> but the, when you get to a certain point and your basic kind of needs for housing and food and those kinds of things are no longer insecure, that more money actually doesn't deliver more happiness. And actually the pursuit of more ends up eroding the very things that we know bring us the most happiness and joy. Things like close friendships, personal relationships, character, because often the pursuit of more will crowd those things out. So the more you want, or the more you have, the more you want. That's the, that's the first thing. The second thing is that the more you have, the more you need to have. The more you have, the more you need so this is what you see in verse 11, where the teacher says, when good things increase, the one who consumes them multiply. The ones who consume them multiply. So what then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? And, and this is the idea that the more stuff you have, like what <laughs> you need to take care of all that stuff, whether those are family members, whether those are things that you own, like the costs increase as well. And we, we feel this, right? If you uh, own a car, that's a good thing. That's a good gift. But the moment you buy that car, it's not like you're done spending money, you know? It's like then you have to buy insurance, and you have to fill it up with gas, and there's maintenance fees, and there's taxes, and there's license, all that go along with owning this thing. So the more you have, the more you need to have. If you buy a bigger home, right? Your utility bills go up. Your property taxes go up. We moved last year into a bigger home. It's like, oh yeah, those electric and gas Heating bills, those are a little bit more now because there's more house to heat and cool. Now again, houses, cars, those are great things. They are gifts, but the more you have, the more you need to have in order to maintain them, to keep them. And so it doesn't provide rest. That's the point. It's not that those are bad gifts, but if you're looking to have rest because of that, this is not the way to get it because the more you have, the more you need to have. And there's also sort of a social obligation too, right? That if you attain a certain level of wealth relative to those in your community or your friends or your family, there's kind of this social pressure that now you're the one who, who's supposed to treat family and friends when it comes to picking up the tab at a meal. Or you start getting lots of invitations to, to fundraising banquets or, um, you know, galas to, to raise money, that kind of thing. So there's this kind of pressure of, oh, you, you've attained this, and so now you should share this with others, which we'll talk about generosity later on, but there, there's a pressure that the more you have, the more you're expected to give and to be generous, and so the more you need to have. ESPN, a number of years ago, about a decade ago, in their 30 for 30 series, did a documentary called Broke on athletes, professional athletes, who they looked at a number of this, a high percentage, after five years out of professional sports, were, were literally broke financially. And there were lots of reasons that they examined, but a big part of that was that even after their careers ended and they weren't making these huge salaries anymore, 
there was still this pressure for them to, to provide, uh, whether it was lavish trips or homes or cars, to kind of people in their circle, people from their communities. There was this expectation, this pressure that if you were going to be a good person, you need to do this. So the more you have, the more you need to have. And the teacher's point is, no matter how much you have, it always seems less than it, than it is. The more you have, the more you need to have. Okay, third is this. The, the more you have, the more you worry. The more you have, the more you worry. Because one again, one of the things that money offers, one of the things that money holds out there as a promise is that your worries will go away, that money gives you control so that you don't have to worry. And again, you know, you can, you can experience some of this, but it doesn't last ultimately. And I, I was actually reminded of this a, f- a few uh, weeks ago. It was about a month ago. It's actually kind of an embarrassing story. I was uh, going to a meeting at our downtown campus, which is in the crossroads, and so I was parallel parking, and I drive, I had a small car, so I was like, I, this, I was kind of running late. I found a spot. It's like, I think I can get this car in there. I was like, yes, I'm going to do this. And I, I parallel parked. It was such a great parallel parking job that I actually said out loud to myself, in the car by myself, wow, that was like a clinic in parallel parking. <laughs> I, now, that's not, I mean, that's embarrassing enough. That's not actually the embarrassing part of the story. But as you know, like pride comes before the fall. And so I walk back to my car after the meeting is over and I'm walking down the sidewalk and I feel for my keys in my pocket. They're not there. It's where I always put my keys. So maybe I put them on my backpack. On my backpack. I walk up, look in the window, and there they are in the front seat. All the doors, are, of course, are locked and I cannot get my keys. Now I'm faced with a choice. My kids weren't feeling well that day. I knew that Rachel was stressed. So I could call her and be like, can you load all the kids up into the van and drive downtown with the other set of keys to get me in my car? Which I just felt like I couldn't do. Um, I was already embarrassed. I was like, I can't do this. But you know what? I have money. And so I can solve problems. So I called a company, paid them $148 for like eight minutes worth of work. uh, And they got my keys out of my car. But that's the prospect that money holds out, right? Like, if I hadn't had $148, which is not what I wanted to spend on, but I would have been really stuck, right? I would have had to, like, I would have had to rely on a person. I would have had to, but it's like, no, like, I have, I have money in my checking account, so I can cover over my embarrassment, and I can solve my problem because I have money. That's the offer that money holds out, that if you have enough of me, you can do that with all your problems, that you, you can just make them go away with money. But when you talk to people who, who kind of reach that space where like, they really have enough money to kind of deal with any problem, you know what you find out? They still worry. They still worry. Money offers us rest and control, but it doesn't work. In fact, the more you have, the more you worry. This is verse 12. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. And the idea there of abundance or the ESV brings that across as like this, the fullness of stomach. It's like the more stuff you have, the more there is to worry about. Uh, And Kelly Capick, who's a theologian, and Brian Fickert, who's an economist, they, they wrote a book titled Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. And again, as economists and theologians both, they, they point out that raising people out of poverty is a really important thing and a vital thing for us to do. 
And then, in fact, Western civilization has been the most effective civilization ever at reducing material poverty, which is an incredible thing to celebrate. I mean, literally millions and millions and millions and millions of people have been lifted out of abject poverty because of a market-based economy. But they highlight that since 1938, anxiety and depression have been increasing as wealth has increased. And so while they do not at all condemn capitalism, they observe that there is something about the way that we're practicing it that doesn't lead to full human flourishing. Because the more you have, the more you worry. And again, if you were to ask Bill Gorman, what is the thing that you worry about? What like, literally keeps you up at night? And I sleep pretty well, but like the times when I can look back and say, I, I could not sleep, nine times out of ten, I'm pretty confident related to some concern about money. Always a worry that it won't be enough, we won't have enough, that what if this happens, how would we possibly, you know, fix this? How would we possibly do this? What if a car died now? What if we, do we don't have enough interest? I mean, it's always about worry. And objectively, I can look and say, I've never been financially better off. Like, when I was in college and seminary, like, I was way more precarious financially. But now, at almost 40 years old and all that, still the same set of worries. Hasn't gone away. So that's the third thing. Fourth, that the more you have, the more you have to lose. The more you have, the more you lose. And this is, again, when I reflect back on my own kind of financial journey, right, when I was in college, if I lost everything in college, that wasn't a whole lot to lose, right? If I was a sophomore in college and I lost everything from a material standpoint, uh, that would have, you know, been probably most a few hundred dollars in a checking account, maybe some college textbooks. I didn't own a car. I didn't own a house. Like, it wouldn't, it would have been hard, but it was not that much to lose as an 18, 19-year-old kid, but if I were to lose everything now, material, it's a lot more to lose. A house, two cars, savings accounts, checking accounts, retirement accounts. So you feel that. It's part of the reasons why the more you have, the more you worry, because there's a lot more at stake. And there's also the older you get, there's the less time to recover from those mistakes, right? Again, if you're college student, you lose everything. There's a lot of time to, to sort of recover from some of those mistakes. The older you get, the, 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 you feel the fragility of the time that you have to recover from mistakes or hardships from the outside. Writer Janine Roth, who's written a lot in the area of food and food addiction, she's a New York Times bestselling author, she tells the story in one of her books about how she lost pretty much all of her book royalties in Bertie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. And this is, you see the, 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 the fickleness of wealth in that story because she tells us of how she had made some bad investments early on and she's like, I just, I wanted something that was really stable and secure. And when I looked at what Bernie Madoff's funds and stuff were doing, it's like they would show, you know, modest gains, modest losses, but it was always kind of, you know, roughly increasing and it just seemed like a safe, responsible thing to do with this wealth. And then one day she gets this phone call, and it is all gone. 
And, and that's what the author of Proverbs, or the, of Ecclesiastes here, this, this writer, what, what he's getting at. The teacher says in 13, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And we're not even told in this little kind of, you know, kind of parable kind of statement that you get here, proverbial statement, what happened with his father and the son, but it's just a kind of this universal experience across time, across income brackets, that you can try to hang on to money and wealth, but whether either through your own irresponsibility, and certainly James Grant reminds us that most of us are not good with large sums of money, so we can certainly just make dumb mistakes or errors, but even if you do everything right and in good faith, you, you invest with Bernie Madoff because you feel like it's a responsible choice. Through no fault of your own, you can end up losing everything. Which is what the author is trying to get us to grapple with here. It can all go away no matter how responsible you are. There's just a fickleness to wealth. And the more you have, the more you have to lose. And then finally, the more you have, the more you leave behind. Verses 15 and 7 through 17 here, I think are some of the most well-known verses in Ecclesiastes, and basically summarized with, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you when you die. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so also shall he go. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. I mean, you know there's that old saying that you, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? Which I guess we can't say that now because I found this picture on the internet of, of a U-Haul behind a hearse. But kind of just points out the ridiculousness of that, right? You can't take it with you. The more you accumulate over your lifetime, you know, as, as much as we hate to, you know, even think about it as we're shopping on Amazon or whatever, the more stuff you accumulate, you're, just, you're really just leaving behind a bigger pile of stuff for someone else to deal with when you're gone. Now, I'm not advocating some kind of sort of absolute minimalism and as approach to life or that you don't leave behind an inheritance to your kids. Like, those are really important things. But just the reality is, if you were looking to money to provide you with a sense of, of rest and security— like, it is ultimately going to fail you because you can't take that with you. It's the great leveler. Whether you have millions of dollars or just a few hundred dollars, in the end, we all go out the same way that we came in. So when you look to wealth for rest, it will only leave you restless. And, and that's the idea here of this uh, eating in darkness language. Back there at the end of verse 17, may, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, because it leaves you restless, right? Think of the time before you had electric lights, where you just turn on light any time of day and night. The, the author's point is that you're eating your food in darkness every night because you've stayed up so late toiling. You're getting up so early to work. You're trying to accumulate all this stuff. All your days you eat in darkness because you can never eat before the sun goes down because you're always striving, working to get more. You're restless. It robs your sleep. So if wealth leaves us restless, where do we find rest? Well, it was the North African theologian, St. Augustine, who 
opened his confessions. This is now over 1,400 years ago when he wrote these words, beginning the whole genre of autobiography in Western literature. And he says this on the opening page, addressing God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. And you know, long before Augustine penned those words, the psalmist sang these words in Psalm 17, but I will see your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I will be satisfied. I will be satisfied with your presence. The psalmist is saying, God, your presence, the reality, the experience of who you are, that will satisfy me. And you know that word satisfied there in Psalm 17, 15 is the exact same word that is used in our passage here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, when it says that he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves income will never be satisfied with income. There is a way to gain satisfaction. This has been the Christian contention all along. But that that satisfaction that we crave is found in the one who made us, not ultimately in the gifts that he gives us. That money and income, if you look to those things, they will not satisfy. But here's the deal. At least this has been true in my life. Simply saying the words, Jesus is more satisfying than money, or Jesus is where true satisfaction is found, not money, has not automatically changed the orientation of my heart to just be satisfied in Jesus. Maybe all of you are way ahead on the journey for me, and you've just been able to say, oh, Jesus is more satisfying than money. Check, and, and it no longer has any power in your life. That has not been my experience. I can know that fact cognitively. But what are the practices that will actually make that a lived reality for me? Not just a, a statement that I've cataloged, like how many feet are in a mile. I want to suggest three practices this morning that will help us train our hearts to find rest in Jesus rather than in all. So how do we train our hearts, that the center of who we are, to find rest in Jesus rather than in wealth? Here's what I want to suggest. A restful repentance, a restful gratitude, and a restful generosity. These are things we can actually do to help train our hearts to find satisfaction in Jesus rather than money. So first is a restful repentance. This is the first and foundational practice that will help us in turning our hearts away from wealth as our Savior. And again, it's, it has to be a regular repentance because this is something our hearts are so inclined in an opposite direction. It's not once just to say, again, yeah, Jesus is more satisfying than wealth and I'm done. It's a regular turning back because I'm telling you, friends, money wants to be your Savior, desperately wants to be your Savior. I want to say, I will the one, I'm the one who's going to give you everything you need. I will provide for you all you need if you just put your hope and trust in me. You will be saved. But money cannot redeem you. Listen to these words from Psalm 49. They trust in their wealth and boast of their abundant riches. Yet these cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God. Since the price of redeeming him is too costly, one should forever stop trying so that he may live forever and not see the pit. 
There is a reason money can't deliver what it offers, and that is because we live outside the garden, and you cannot pay your way back into the garden where the tree of life is found, where true rest is found. There's no amount of money that can redeem you from the bondage of sin that can bring you back into the garden. There's only one who can do that, and it's not Benjamin Franklin. It's not U.S. Grant. It's not Andrew Jackson. None of them put themselves on a cross for you. But Jesus did. And he will give you rest. And he can actually transform your relationship to wealth so that it actually becomes a gift and a tool rather than a master. Because when you know that you are loved by someone who gave their life for you, and and more than that has actually risen from the dead and has promised to do the same for you, and to bring you into a kingdom full of abundance and joy, then you no longer need to get your security and comfort and control from money. And then money becomes this thing that you can enjoy, that you can use without it destroying and enslaving you. And the bridge that, that allows that to happen is gratitude. A restful gratitude is is a keystone habit in life that helps you escape the futility of money and wealth. It's one of the most powerful practices that can set us free. So first of all, you just have to acknowledge, I'm looking to money to do something that only Jesus can do for me. That's the repentance. And then gratitude is a practice that regularly helps you transform your affection from the gift to the giver. That's what gratitude does, right? If someone hands you a gift and you're like, oh, I love this thing, It's the act of saying thank you that turns your attention away just from the gift back to the person who gave it. This is what gratitude does. It changes our affection. It transfers the location of our affections from the gift to the giver. This is what John Orberg, a pastor in California, what he writes about gratitude. He says, gratitude is not something we give to God because he wants to make sure we know how much trouble he went to over us. Gratitude is itself (laughs) is the gift God gives us to enable us to be blessed by all of his other gifts. The way our taste buds enable us to enjoy the gift of food. Without gratitude, our lives degenerate into envy, dissatisfaction, and complaints. Taking what we have for granted and always wanting more. One of the ways that I've incorporated this, this practice into my own life is I just, I, one of the ways I kind of keep track of things I'm praying for and praying about is just on little three by five index cards. And in that stack, I have one just called Thanksgiving, gratitude. And because I know my heart is so inclined to worry about money, you can ask Rachel, this is true. I have a card that specifically just records God's financial provision for our family whether it's in a home or a car, I can just look back. Oh yeah, back in this year, we were able to purchase this car and we weren't expecting to be able to do that. Or we had this unexpected gift of of income or whatever it might have been. And looking back through that list, both large and small things, again, it transfers my affection back to the one who has given all things. And here's the reality then. We've been given these things to enjoy. So what's the teacher says in 5, 18 through 19. It's not like wealth is a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a gift. He says, here's what I've seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat and drink and experience good and all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. 
because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them. Take his reward and enjoy, rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. That these things are gifts. If you have them, enjoy them. It's not a bad thing. You don't have to feel guilty about them. But with gratitude, transfer your affection from the gift to the giver. And this final practice is a restful generosity. Right? Generosity is what multiplies the joy of the giver and the receiver. And here's something that fascinating I noticed in my study on this passage this past week. That, that line in verse 10, but never being satisfied with income, is one of the words that's used there, with money, and then there's a separate word that's used, never being satisfied with income. The, the word income is, is the idea of what you would receive from your field. This is an you know, agricultural, agrarian kind of economy setting, so it's the idea of the produce of your field, your harvest. That if you love that, that, you'll never be satisfied with it. And it's interesting that in the other parts of the Hebrew Bible, both in the, the law, the Torah, as well as the other wisdom literature, that God tells us what our relationship to that should be. So the word income, it's also used in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. That's the same word in Ecclesiastes 5, this idea of your income. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, all your income. And also it's the word used in Deuteronomy chapter 14, 22, when God's kind of laying out the law for his people to live under his rule in the Old Testament. It says, at the end of every three years, bring a tenth of all your produce, of all your income, same word, for that year, and store within your city gates. And this idea of a tenth is where we get this idea, maybe you've heard Christians talk about a tithe, of giving 10% of your income. That's, that's the Old Testament kind of background to the idea. We don't practice it exactly the same way as they did, but this is the foundation of the idea. And when through a regular habit of gratitude, you realize that everything you have is a gift, have as a gift, then you want to become a giver. And this Old Testament teaching carries over in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, and, and it's language here in 1 Timothy 6 that's just saturated with Ephesia, or rather Ecclesiastes 5. Paul is clearly reflecting on this text. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 6, 6. Godliness with contentment is great grain. Why? Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. And this is, he's reflecting back on Ecclesiastes 5. And then down to verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Right? We feel, this is Ecclesiastes' whole point, riches are so uncertain. But on God, so we're transferring our hope from riches to God, but on God who richly provides everything with us to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So we're getting this picture in 1 Timothy 6 of a life, a true life, is one that is filled with gratitude and generosity and enjoyment of God's good gifts. Sharing our money, being generous people, I think is one of the deepest markers of our discipleship and more, these are the same, but our true trust in Jesus. Because it's when you can say, I can give away my money, that you're actually tangibly saying, I'm trusting Jesus to provide for me. When we have a difficult giving away our money, when you look down underneath that, usually it's because I don't trust that Jesus will actually take care of me which means your functional day-to-day -day Savior is not Jesus, but your checking account. 
And so that's why generosity is one of those practices that it actually forces you into a place of saying, I feel like I don't have enough to give away, but I believe Jesus enough that I'm going to do it anyway and trust that he will show up and provide for me. And I I can bear witness to this because Rachel and I have certainly not lived our financial life perfectly. We've made lots of mistakes along the way. Some, you know, purposeful, knowingly, we're going to spend more on this than we should. Some just out of naivete along the way. We have not lived our financial journey perfectly. I want you to know that. But one thing, and we both had parents who modeled this for us, one thing we have consistently done from the beginning of our marriage is we, the top line of that, the very first line in that budget spreadsheet has always been offering and generosity. And that has been painful at times. When I divide out the money, each paycheck, and it comes in, sometimes it feels like, okay. But the discipline of that habit, now over a decade plus of marriage, has positioned our hearts in a different kind of way and in one of a posture of trust in Jesus. And it has yielded joy. Now, I know whenever a pastor talks about generosity, especially generosity and giving to the local church, all that, that it's hard not to say, okay, isn't this a bit self-interested? But what I want you to know, so I acknowledge that, and there's been lots of financial abuse in churches. Just hear that. We work really hard at Christ Community to, to have our books audited and to be an open book. If you ever have any questions about how finances are used here, please talk with us. Talk to our HR. Talk to our business team. But I want to say to you, is that we trust Jesus to provide for our needs as a church. So it's not about what we want from you, but rather it's about exhorting you, calling to the life that Jesus wants for you. We don't need something from you, but we long to have you experience the life that is truly life that Paul talks about, that Jesus talks about. So whenever we teach on money, that's why. Not because we need something from you, but because we want the life that Jesus longs for you to have. Friends, if you look to wealth to find rest, it will only leave you restless. But Jesus invites you to come to him and find rest. Have you done that? Will you do that? Will you, like me, do it again? Because I find myself slipping back into commerce checking account being my functional savior so often. Would you do that again today? Put your hope and trust in him, not in the fleetingness of riches. And then you can enjoy them for what they are for as long as you have them. But they aren't your savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we know our hearts are inclined to love money because they promise to give us rest. It promises us to give us everything that you have already given us. So help me, Jesus, to find the satisfaction in what you have given me beyond compare. So that then I can enjoy your gifts and use it as a tool and share it with others and and not fear it like I would fear the loss of you or ought to feel the loss of you. So for those of us who have trusted you but find ourselves drifting back to a functional trust in money, would you... Would you rescue us afresh this morning? For those of us who have never made that move, would today be the day where we say, look, I'm I'm not going to believe the lie of money that says it can save me any longer. 
whether we have a lot relatively or a little relatively. Would you show us the places where we're looking to money for something you can only give us? Would you give us great joy when we find you instead?